This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Earlier this month, Apple co-founder and CEO Steve Jobs put an open letter on the Apple website. In that letter, Jobs argued that the technology that music providers use to protect songs from all but certain kinds of use, the technologies called digital rights management, or DRM, hasn't worked out. And he suggested in the letter that we'd all be a lot better off if DRM just wasn't around anymore. To many in the technology world, this was a very big deal. But to those of us who see technology as more of a means to an end than as a hobby, DRM is something of a mystery. That's also true of some other aspects of life in the digital age, like how exactly Amazon.com can be so eerily prescient about what other products we might be interested in. Tom McCourt says that both DRM and the thing that informs Amazon of your preferences are part of a single system that he calls the Celestial Jukebox. McCourt is an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham University. He's also the co-author, with Patrick Burkhardt, of the book Digital Music Wars, Ownership and Control of the Celestial Jukebox. McCourt joins me in the studio today on Fordham Conversations to talk about DRM, the Celestial Jukebox, and why he says we should be very worried about a lot of what's going on online. Tom McCourt, welcome. Thank you. Now, first of all, I'll ask you a very simple question. What is the Celestial Jukebox? Well, the Celestial Jukebox was originally seen as a means to deliver virtually any type of content, be it text or music or video, from a satellite that would orbit the Earth. And uh, you would pay to access this, and then the file would be beamed down to whatever uh, receiver you had. It's a metaphor that's frequently been used to describe the kind of situation that we're moving into where ostensibly you don't buy anything, you don't own anything. Instead, you rent it for a period of time, and then when your lease expires, it disappears. Tell me the story of the technology that you're referring to when you talk about the Celestial Jukebox in this book. Well, basically, there are two primary components. First of all, there's uh, customer relationship management. And probably the form that most people are familiar with is uh, ordering from online retailers where if you uh, say you go to Amazon and you buy a book and there's a thing that pops up on the side, oh, people who bought this book also bought this, 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 this. So what this is designed to do essentially is to push particular kinds of content to users based on uh, your interests. And, uh, you know, this technology has been around for uh, uh, some time now, probably about 15 years. Um, that is one major component of it. Again, it's, a, it's designed to reduce uncertainty for marketers, okay? Um, then the other major component is uh, digital rights management. And what that does is to place restrictions on uh, use. Uh, this kind of technology has been around really since uh, the uh, advent of uh, video cassette recorders, right? A lot of uh, uh, movies that were released for use in VCRs had copy protection built into them. So if you tried to make a copy, uh, the picture would distort, et cetera. So you have the um, customer relationship management. What is wrong with that? If I'm shopping on Amazon and I look and there's a recommendation for me, that seems, you know, maybe I think that's kind of nice. 
what is what's the insidious thing that you say is going on? Well, it can be really helpful in terms of, oh, you know, I didn't know about this. The problem I see it is in terms of culture, that it sort of limits your choices, right? It can tell you what you did, but it can't really tell what you're trying to do, what you're looking for. And so what happens is that the more you use this stuff, the more detailed a profile you get uh, is, is assembled on you. But it basically tends to push you toward things that it thinks you're going to want rather than uh, exposing you to things that you may not know anything about. So ultimately, while it seems to expand choice, cultural choice, in the long run, it serves to limit that. It narrows down what you're going to be exposed to. You know, you don't really have that serendipitous experience that you do when you go into Uh, say, a bookstore, right, and you're just walking up and down the aisles and something catches your eye. Instead, this is like steering you to one particular section of the bookstore. So I think it has a lot of of cultural implications there. And what about digital rights management? What's the story there? Essentially, it's designed to regulate your activities. It does this through a couple of ways. The first is what's known as encryption, where... You get a sample of a clip, okay, of of some kind of content, and then you have to order the key to uh, open up the rest of it, right? And there's a record that's kept, of course, of of your your purchases, etc. Then the other part of DRM is what's called watermarking, which is essentially like a digital fingerprint that's assigned to each file. So things can be traced back to the original user. So again, we run into concerns with privacy here. Digital rights management is a technology that's built into things like DVDs and CDs, etc., which is designed to prevent any kind of copying whatsoever. Well, shouldn't I have the right, once I buy something, to make an additional copy for my own use? Right? I'm not going to go out and sell copies of this. I simply want a backup because, you know, DVDs are getting more and more expensive. It's a major investment. And say, uh, you know, my little nephew's over, and uh, although I shouldn't do this, I want to use the television as a babysitter, right? Well, suppose he gets a hold of the DVD and starts teething on it. The thing is trashed. Shouldn't I be able to make a copy and set that aside? The trouble is, is... Because of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act, which was uh, passed into law in 1998, any attempt at getting around digital rights management technology is breaking the law. It doesn't matter what the purpose is. It basically does away with this idea of fair use, that once I buy something, I have the right to do with it as I please. What was the climate then in the legislature when this when this law passed? Because it does seem to really fall heavily on the side of the recording industry. They lobbied very, very hard for it. Another very important piece of legislation that was passed at this time, also 1998, was the Sonny Bono Term Extension Act. And what this did was to extend copyright for an additional 20 years. So now copyrights covered the life of the author plus 70 years. They also cover so-called works for hire, which are things that are owned by distributors, 
such as record companies or film studios, these are now covered for 95 years. And this was known as the so-called Mickey Mouse Law because Disney was instrumental behind it. Uh, The copyright to the first Mickey Mouse cartoons was about to expire, and so uh, Disney and other media companies lobbied very hard to get this law passed. And so I'm sure that in another 15 years or so, when these copyrights are ready to expire, we're going to see a further extension of copyright beyond this. Because, again, this is where these companies really make their money, is in terms of controlling copyrights, because they can spin it off in any number of directions. You know, as we see companies owning these copyrights, basically... A film, for example, can be spun off into a soundtrack album, into a video game, into a novelization of a script, etc. It's no longer just a thing in itself. It's a whole bundle of rights. Therefore, obviously, they want to extend control over this so they can continue to get revenues from it. And you talk about The Lion King as an example of that. Absolutely. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking today on the show with Tom McCourt. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is the co-author of the book Digital Music Wars, Ownership and Control of the Celestial Jukebox. It's out now from Roman and Littlefield. Let's return now to our conversation. Let's move out of the legislature and back into the computer universe. You talk in your book about a surveillance, I'm quoting, surveillance-based government of the Internet. And at the same time, you don't feel like the celestial jukebox, which is an entity within the Internet, is being well-regulated. Tell me about how those both can be true. Well, first of all, uh, in terms of regulation... uh, the fact is is that the content industries have very much had the upper hand in this. They're very well organized. They're able to present a united front, whereas consumer groups, the public in general, doesn't have this kind of unity. You do have groups like the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which are trying to establish or uh, further the rights of consumers. But in terms of a lobbying presence, they can't even begin to compare to the major Hollywood studios or the major record companies, which have tremendous resources behind them. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a major problem. The problem with surveillance-based government is that you don't have control over your personal information. We have very limited privacy protection here in the United States as opposed to Europe. They're much more stringent about this sort of thing. And every time you go online, basically... Your activities can be monitored. Google, for example, keeps its search records for something like 30 years. This is a major problem, that we don't have control over our personal information as I think we should. This could be used for government surveillance. It can also be used for surveillance of uh, consumers by business. Do I really want my search history or my acquisitions traded off between corporate divisions. I can go into a library, borrow a book. There's no record of what books I've borrowed. This isn't true with online retailing. You talk in your book about the moment when the internet shifted from being public to being private and commercial. Tell me about that. 
Well, this is when we started to see more and more private companies become involved in the Internet. And the Internet was legally not allowing people to do commercial activity. Right, yes. Basically, commercial activities was was outlawed on the Internet until I think it was uh, 1991. So what happened is that more and more companies realized that here was a tremendously effective way to uh, market and sell goods, distribute, market, and sell. And so they moved in, and, of course, advertising became ubiquitous. So we've seen a fundamental change from public ownership of these networks over to private ownership, Internet service providers. And so what they're doing, essentially, is creating kind of walled gardens in terms of trying to keep you within that particular network. I used to give my students an assignment where they would surf from website to website and keep a record until they circumnavigated the globe. And what I found is that over the course of about five years, this became virtually impossible because you would go into a website and the number of links that would be there to take you out were fewer and fewer and fewer. So what we're seeing is increasingly these individual networks becoming more and more closed off. The Internet itself is uh, very sprawling, but it's all about keeping you within a given network rather than allowing you to freely navigate around. Companies want want sticky websites. They want you to stay on their website rather than jumping off to something else. And so they're doing everything within their power to try to get this to happen. But, you know, again, it's it's always a a kind of trade-off. While they're trying to implement these technologies, at the same time, they're never going to be able to, no single organization has control of the Internet. They're never going to be able to completely control it. It's like control of the seas uh, in the uh, 19th century. No country was ever able to do it. But at the same time, what's happening is that individual networks are becoming more and more stringent in terms of what kind of activities they allow and what kind of activities they don't. So... We're seeing the Internet basically kind of breaking up into a mosaic, and each individual piece has limitations on what you can and cannot do. How would that work? Give me an example. Well, for example, here at Fordham, um, if you have an account through the school, what kind of activities can you do, what kind can't you do? Through things like firewalls, for example. They preclude you from uh, using uh, peer-to-peer file sharing sites, for example. My students tell me this. So individual networks have a great deal of leeway in terms of what activities they allow and what they disallow. And so we're seeing basically the architecture of the Internet developing outside of a public dimension The companies that operate the individual networks themselves are deciding what kinds of activities are allowable without any sort of public debate. And this is a real concern that this great commons is increasingly being defined by commercial interests with very limited public debate. Oh, you don't like this particular network? Well, go over to this network over here. But we're seeing fewer and fewer providers controlling more and more of cyberspace. The early Internet was government-controlled. It was the government internet. We all know about Al Gore claiming he invented the internet and so forth. What do you think might have happened had the internet not 
gone public in the way that it did? I think it would have been a much more freewheeling, anarchic public space. The trouble is, is that when commercial interests move into these endeavors, that not all audiences are created equally, that they're going to go after the most affluent audiences. I think that there would have been much more opportunity for pluralism. Look at something like uh, the development of peer-to-peer file sharing. This is one of the original technologies of the Internet. It was used to send files back and forth between uh, early users. And what's happened is that as commercial companies become more involved in this, they want to circumscribe this kind of activity. They want to place controls on what can and cannot be allowed. And so I think that there might have been an alternative to this if the government had been more stringent in terms of allowing commercial activity, for example. You know, here's a, here's a system that was essentially subsidized by taxpayer money, okay, much like the interstate highway system. Here is something that we all paid for initially, and increasingly it's being used for private profit. I wish that uh, the government would have more actively involved the public in terms of deliberation over legislation like the Digital Millennium Copyright Act or the Sonny Bono Term Extension Act. But the fact is that this legislation was rushed through with very, very little debate. Do you think, though, that the Internet would have taken off the way that it did if it wasn't commercialized? I mean, I can't count the number of people that I know who had AOL back then? Well, I think that it would have been very, very popular, certainly, as a medium of communication. I don't think necessarily that the involvement of commercial companies really heightened that public forum space, what might have been an alternative would have been to um, have the government more actively involved with the creation of this system, or uh, states, to take it away more from these private interests who are not interested in reaching all members of the public. Again, they want to get the folks who can afford it, who will buy the goods that are advertised, instead of the public in general. So if the if the government had taken more of a responsibility in the development of this as a public good, then I think things might have been very, very much different. But there's a kind of neolibertarian rhetoric surrounding the development of these technologies where any kind of government interference is bad. We've got to keep the government out of this. And let's leave it all up to the marketplace. And as a result, again, the marketplace is not interested in serving everyone equally. I think, you know, nobody would argue there is validity to the marketplace, that it does provide goods and services on one level. But the fact is that it falls way short in other areas, especially when you're dealing with public goods and services. Now, the commercial world may not be in existence to serve the public good necessarily, but they are very good at something that the government isn't necessarily that good at, which is selling things. And I wonder if the internet would be in our lives the way that it is now had AOL not existed, had you know MSN Messenger not existed. What would our lives be like now? <laughs> 
a lot less complicated. This is something, again, I see uh, with my students is the electronic tethering that takes place, this kind of ubiquitous communication which seems very, very superficial, that there is this absolute terror of being untethered. On the one hand, you constantly have to have your existence recognized. (laughs) But on the other hand, there's really nothing to say. It's all very guarded. It's all very mediated, right? Somebody sends you a text message and you can uh, choose to ignore it, whereas dealing with somebody on a face-to-face basis is a lot more complicated. Certainly, you know, I don't think anybody would deny that uh, the Internet has made uh, tremendous contributions to our lives, uh, you know, on an interpersonal basis, but it also has a cost. You know, no technology is completely neutral. It's a zero-sum game, right? It creates advantages and then it creates disadvantages, problems. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Ahead this morning on Cityscape, Valentine's Day is over, but love is still in the air with New York City stories of romance. Cityscape with George Bodarkey this morning at 7.30 on WFUV. We've been talking today on Fordham Conversations to Tom McCourt. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is one of the authors of the 2006 book Digital Music Wars, Ownership and Control of the Celestial Jukebox. It's out now from Roman and Littlefield. We hear a lot about how on the internet with MySpace and other things like that, it's it's easier for musicians to to do you know to make it to distribute their music to spread the word about who they are, et cetera, et cetera. Is that true or is that an illusion? Oh, I think it's much easier to get publicity. The thing is, is that the record companies, the major record companies, aren't going to go out of business. If you want to make it on a massive scale, you have to have the promotion and distribution capabilities of a major record company behind you. You know, you can eke out a living outside of that, but if you really want to make it on a massive level, if you want to be a superstar, you've got to go with a major label. It's kind of interesting to see how these social networking sites are starting to develop. Basically, the recording industry is trying to use these to to their advantage. They see these as a disruptive technology, very similar to the way that peer-to-peer file sharing was uh, was working. And disruptive technology is something that interrupts the way they do business? Exactly. Something that messes up their business model. But increasingly, they're trying to co-opt this to serve their advantage. They want to stamp out unauthorized use, but they want to they want to underscore so-called authorized use, where, for example, people can put clips from music videos up on their MySpace pages, and then the record company gets a cut of any kind of advertising revenue. Ultimately, it very much works to their advantage through things like viral marketing, right, which is a kind of word of mouth. It's very effective advertising to go to the MySpace page of a friend of yours, and they have a music clip or a video clip up, and it's like, oh, isn't that great? You know, I'm going to check this out. In fact, I like it so much, I'm going to go out and buy the uh, DVD or I'm going to buy the CD. So the audience here increasingly does the heavy lifting of promotion. What they'd like to do is essentially get into a dual market. First of all, they'd continue to sell recordings or lease them out, if you will. 
but they can also sell audiences to advertisers. They can try to aggregate traffic to particular websites like MySpace and capture audiences that way and then sell these audiences to advertisers, get a cut of the proceeds, etc. So it very much works to their advantage. In that regard, it works to their advantage in terms of viral marketing. They can track how many people are viewing a particular clip at any given time. So it enables them to essentially figure out, oh, these folks are getting popular. We're going to put more promotion behind them. Okay? So it serves as a kind of research and development. Again, the audience, this is one of the things I find most interesting about this, the audience is increasingly involved with the promotion and distribution, the very things that the major content companies made their money from. But one of the keys to that seems to be that people aren't explicitly aware that they're involved in promotion. Exactly. Yeah, it's a kind of promotion that dare not speak its name. But sure, it it is flat-out promotion. This is slightly off-topic, but one of the things that I read that you had written was actually an article about kinds of promotion that younger people find acceptable that older ones such as perhaps ourselves don't necessarily find so acceptable, which is sort of this kind of pseudo-viral marketing of putting stuff in commercials. It's interesting. I asked one of my classes, how do you find out about new music? Because uh, they said that they spend less and less time listening to radio. How do you find out about new uh, music from uh, recommendations from friends? Well, some of them raised their hands. I said, well, how do you find out about it? They said, well, from commercials. I said, from commercials? How does that work? They said, well, if I hear a song on a commercial that I like a lot, what I'll do is I'll try to catch a little bit of the lyric, and then I'll Google it, and I'll find out what the song is. And if I like it, I'll go out and buy it. So advertising increasingly is seen as a major way to uh, sell recordings. Well, of course, this is anathema to uh, people who feel that uh, art should be somehow sacrosanct, you know, that it's art for art's sake. But increasingly, that's the way things work now. Increasingly, there isn't that kind of line between art and commerce, which, which I see as, uh, you know, it's a loss of something. So are we just old or is there really something wrong? Well, you know, I hate to pound the doom drum, but, uh, yeah, I see it as uh, deeply problematic that uh, everything is reduced to the status of commodities. Everything is reduced to that. They always were commodities, but now this is foregrounded. Now it's nothing but a commodity. I see that as um, not a good thing for our culture that uh, where's there a place for stuff that's innovative, that's unique, or maybe has some kind of a strong cultural tradition that that contributes something to our culture? Where's the place for that? Now, we're talking about this, and it sounds like we are just talking about uh, pretty much the doom and end of society, taking into account that we may be taking this perhaps more seriously than people who don't work in media. Why should people care about this? What is the ultimate end result? Should it continue unchecked? Well, you know, again, nothing is ever complete or total. But I do think, especially in terms of privacy issues, something needs to be done about this. There's always going to be disruptive technology. There are always ways around things. But 
to find an in around on these things, I think will become increasingly difficult. And so what is going to happen in the future, it's anyone's guess. Uh, it's always a struggle. But I think that the outcome could be pretty dark unless people become more aware of these kinds of issues concerning privacy and if they start to mobilize against these kinds of violations of privacy. What would you like to see happen among the just sort of regular Internet-using public? A greater awareness of surveillance practices, of uh, privacy, of, of uh, drawing the line. You know, if a, if a particular provider, for example, has very draconian measures, then trying to fight this stuff to organize uh, on the local, state, and national level for greater freedoms in regard to this. Is there like sort of one or two specific things that people just never do that they can do to protect their privacy in terms of not having a really detailed dossier of information about them? Well, sure. Cookies, for example. These are files that are placed on your computer, which uh, can be used then to track your behavior. Go through uh, your computer periodically. Get rid of this stuff. There are various programs which make it more difficult to track behavior. But again, you know, the dissemination of these, you have to know somebody who is a techie, really, to take advantage of these things. It's very problematic. Hopefully, you know, people will be more aware of this stuff. And they have to push, they have to organize for greater Internet freedom. Great. Well, Tom McCourt, thank you so much. It's a pleasure. That was Tom McCourt. He's an assistant professor of communication and media studies at Fordham, and he is one of the authors of the 2006 book, Digital Music Wars, Ownership and Control of the Celestial Jukebox. That book is out now from Roman and Littlefield. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. We are now podcasting the show. If you're interested in subscribing or just looking for more information, click on podcasting on our homepage, WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend.